Now, as we're starting this new series, let me kind of set the stage for you about what's happening um, for this letter to be written, what God is, is orchestrating here. After Jesus died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead, he appeared and he taught for 40 days, and then he ascended up into heaven. Ten days after this, would have been 50 days after his crucifixion, at the Feast of Pentecost, God the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in a marked way. They began to speak in tongues so that people who were gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost from all over the world began to hear the good news about Jesus in their own language. And as they heard it, people were converted. People were saved from from their sin. They were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And those people went back proclaiming the gospel into their towns. And churches were formed. This is how the the beginning of the spread of the gospel happened throughout the world. Well, that gospel reached uh, all over the place, including all the way to Italy, where a church was was formed. And people, the the gospel probably went first into the synagogues, uh, there likely in Rome, where people who had been crying out for the Messiah to come, believing in the Jewish God, they heard that he came. The Jewish Messiah came, Jesus. He fulfilled all of the promises, prophecies, and pictures of the Old Testament. Believe upon him, and many there evidently repented. And they professed faith in Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah. And a church was born there. And these professing believers likely would have been baptized and began taking the Lord's Supper together. But as comes with any true Christian, persecution began to come against them. Pressure came against them, particularly for the church that this letter is written to, a pressure from their Jewish friends and family members, those that they likely used to worship with, saying, whoa, 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 you need to forget this Jesus guy, you need to come back to Judaism. You need to come back to the law, you need to come back to the prophets, you need to come back to the temple, you need to come back to the sacrificial system, because this Jesus guy is not qualified to save you. Because you have no high priest offering up a sacrifice for you anymore. And the author of this letter, who is evidently a pastor of these people, he saw what was happening. This persecution was coming. Chapter 12, verse 4 tells us that it was, they had not yet begun to shed blood yet, but it was heading that way. So social persecution, where they would, they would be losing jobs. They would be put in jail. They would be uh, disowned by family members, uninvited to parties, scorned by former friends. And that pressure was pushing on them, and the pastor saw something in this congregation who had once been so fervent about professing Christ as the Messiah, he saw something that unsettled him. He saw in these people a, a, a wavering that began, a doubting a drawing away from the church and the associations with other believers and, as always comes with that, a drawing away from Jesus and some going back to Judaism. And it's with that setting that the Holy Spirit of God moves in this author to write the letter that we have today calling, that we call the letter to the Hebrews. And his intent in writing this is is to to warn 
their hearts and to warm their affections. Saying, no, 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 don't, don't go, don't leave Christ. Now, how, how would he do that? How would, how would he give them a warning and a warming that is, that's, a, that's powerful enough, strong enough to, to combat the, the pull of temptation and the pain of persecution? What is going to be strong enough to do that? The author says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give him Jesus. I'm going to show him Jesus. And from cover to cover in this book, he holds up Jesus and proclaims, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than the Levitical priesthood. He's greater than the sacrifices that were all simply a shadow. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than the He's greater than the old covenant because he ushers in a new covenant where there's forgiveness of sins once for all. Jesus is greater. That's what the whole book's about. And as he lifts up Jesus to say he is greater, hoping to warm their affections by the power of the Holy Spirit, he then seeks to sober them with giving them five warnings. There's five warnings throughout these 13 chapters alerting them to this fact that God has no plan B. There is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. There's no plan B for Jews to go back to Judaism. He says, you can't go back to Judaism because Jesus fulfilled it all. God's going this way in Christ. You can't go back. There's nothing there. And he warns them soberly and in turn warns us that to forsake Jesus is to forsake all hope of eternal life. So most of us in here are not being tempted to go back to Judaism. Some of you may be. All of us are being tempted to go back to something. To leave Jesus for something that says it's better. Something that promises a refuge. Some sort of comfort. Some sort of escape from the pressure. Everybody in here, if you're a Christian, is being called to forsake Jesus to go back to Egypt, as it were. The word that we have from God in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. And that if you trust Him and you love Him, and you persevere in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, that leads to an eternal rest with Him forever at Mount Zion. And this book is intended to help them and to help us make it home. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. We're going to begin this morning in the first three verses of the book of Hebrews. We're going to see here that Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is the final word from heaven. Follow along with me, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. 
And He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The main idea that we'll hear this morning is this, that Jesus is God's full and final revelation to the world. Jesus is God's full and final word to the world. What does Jesus want to say to you? He says, look at me. What does God want from you? He wants you to look at the Son and to believe. To help us do this, we're going to look at three big ideas that are found here in the text. The kind of a flow of thought. We're going to look first at God's former revelation. God's former revelation through the prophets. Secondly, God's final revelation through the Son. And then thirdly, God's full revelation in the Son. Former revelation, final revelation, and full revelation. First one, look again with me at God's former revelation, the way God used to do it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So before we look forward to see God's final and full revelation, we look back to how He formally spoke to His people. Before we even do that, I think we just got to not overlook a really important thing right here. God spoke. God, God spoke. The God of the Bible is not a silent God. He's not like Baal in the Old Testament whose, whose worshipers cried out all day long, cutting themselves, hoping that He would see from heaven and intervene on their behalf. He is not that kind of God who leaves His people ashamed. The God of the Bible is not a silent God. He is a speaking God. He loves to communicate about Himself and make Himself known. God loves to do that. Now, He doesn't do it on our timetable or in our way, but He does it in the way that is right and best. There's two basic ways that this God who loves to communicate about who He is, which is, which, if He's not worthy of doing that, it would be an arrogant thing. So if you're walking around all the time, let me tell you how great I am, that's an arrogant thing. But if God says, let me tell you how great I am, it's just true. And it would actually be evil for God to not give us Himself. So it is wonderful for God to do this. That's the whole point of life, by the way, is He created us to be able to enjoy that. So the way that God speaks is, is kind of twofold. There's general and special revelation. General revelation is available to everybody, everywhere, in everything. It's seen. Psalm 19.1 puts it this way. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. So creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees flowers, lily pads, frogs that hop on lily pads, chipmunks, goats, whatever you think. Everything, grass, flowers of all shapes, sizes, smells, everything that's made, all of that is like, it's like a book that's opened up before our eyes and our ears and our noses and our fingers every day. And it's signed by God. 
saying, God did this. God made the world. Everything in it, he did it. It's where it came from. Romans 1.20 says that through the creation, his power and divine nature are put on display so that the world is without excuse. Without excuse. So if you're in here today and you say there's no God, I just want you to know that God says you're wrong. I don't say that arrogantly to you. I just want you to know that God says in his word, no, actually, look around. Whether it be through a microscope or a telescope, wherever you're looking, big or small, it all has order and design. I did it. If you find a watch on a beach, you don't think, look what time and chance and waves did. Somebody did that. There is general creation that says, God was here. God did this. He made it. And even now, it testifies that we might be humbled and say, who is this maker? And to know who that maker is, we then need special revelation. God needs to say, I got more information for you. So that you don't just start worshiping the creation as an end. That's what blind people in their sin do. They turn and worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what is this special revelation? Well, it's specific, specific messages that God gives to people that reveal more clearly and more fully who he is and what he promises to do and in turn what he wants from us. That's, that's what special revelation is. Where God reveals more clearly who he is, what he's promised to do, and what he requires from, from us. He did this in the Old Testament, it says here in our text, to our fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Moses, David, the fathers of, of Israel. And he did this, he says, by the prophets. Now, a prophet is a man whom God gives a specific message. Now, there were prophets and prophetesses in the Old Testament, so a person through whom God gives a specific message to proclaim to a specific people. In the Old Testament, there's somewhere between 25 and 30 prophets that we see. There's different books written by different prophets. You have Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, all those guys. And then you see, you see other prophets who are mentioned in the narratives. Now you might ask, why so many prophets? Why a plurality of, of prophets? Well, it's because they give a diversity of messages about this God. And in each of these messages that the prophets are giving, they find, we find different aspects of his character. Various portions of his plan and his will and his purposes about how he's going to send a savior. So to Adam, the Messiah would be born of a woman. To Abraham, it was told that the, the savior who would bless the world, would be from the Jewish line. To Jacob, it was told that the Redeemer would be from the tribe of Judah. To Moses, it was told, the text we heard this morning, that a prophet is going to be raised up who's going to be like him but better than him. To David, that the eternal king who would reign forever in glory was going to come through his line. To Micah, that this king would be born in Bethlehem. To Isaiah, that he'd be born of a virgin and that he would be a suffering servant. 
long ago at many times and in many ways God did this. So when God gave these messages to the prophets and the prophets were supposed to proclaim it to the nation of Israel, he did it in lots of different ways. You've got speaking prophets, Jonah, Elijah, other guys like that. You've got writing prophets, Habakkuk, God tells them, you write that on a book and get to running and tell them. You've got prophets who act things out, uh, like uh, Ezekiel who did skits, Isaiah who had to run through town in a a loincloth. Aren't you glad none of your pastors are doing that? Right, amen? Amen, yes. Hosea, Hosea, he says, Hosea, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a wife who's committed adultery on you, and I want you to forgive her, and I want you to bring her back as your own. Because that's exactly what my people have done to me. And I want you to feel the pain that comes through this so that you can know when you proclaim truths about me the pain that I feel from my people who say, we're going to go after other lovers. In the Old Testament, we have many prophets communicating many portions of revelation in many ways. And they're all serving as pieces of a puzzle. Notes in a symphony. Brushstrokes on a canvas. Shadows letting the Old Testament saints know that on the horizon is coming the fulfillment. And that fulfillment is fast approaching. He is coming. Jesus himself, the fulfillment of all of those prophets, said it this way in Matthew 13. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. When he was there in the first century, he said, everything that you see and hear right now, the prophets would have given anything to see and hear. John 8.56, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Abraham wanted to see the one through whom his line, who who had come and bless all the world. Who is he? He wanted to know. John 5.46, Jesus said, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophet who's going to be raised up like Moses. Listen to him. Jesus says, that was about me. Listen to me. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets, pointing them to look forward with anticipation to the one who was coming to fulfill all of their long-awaited hopes of help. Somebody save us from this mess that is all around us and all within us that we cannot escape like air. Help us. First Peter testifies of this. Chapter 1, verse 10 says, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So as the prophets are writing down their messages, as they are speaking their messages, they're thinking, who is this guy? Who is this one? When's he coming? That's what the prophets were thinking when they were proclaiming and writing messages that today are contained in the Bible that you hold in front of you. Well, he says it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. 
by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. But that means that right now, everything the prophets of God who have always looked for, it's true, and you hear the fulfillment right now in the preaching of Jesus. Jesus is what everybody before the cross was looking forward to who were among God's people, longing for the fulfillment. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Well, Jesus, God's former revelation through the prophets gave way to the fulfillment who is Christ. Jesus is greater than the prophets. And Jesus is greater than the prophets because they gave a spoken word, but he is the living word. They gave a written word, but he is the incarnate word. God's former way is done. His final way is upon us. Point two. God's final revelation. God's final revelation. Long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God's final word to the world is Jesus. Jesus. He's it. What's the answer? Jesus. In Jesus, God gave His final word to the world. Now you notice here in verse 2 it says, in these, well first you'll notice the word but, which shows a contrast. So something's changed. Something's changed. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Last days. The final chapter of human history began with the coming of Christ. All of history up to that moment had been crying out for anticipation. Every promise, prophecy, picture of the Old Testament was looking forward to that day. And the final chapter in human history began when Christ entered the world and lived a perfect life. Loving people as, uh, as, him, as he would love himself. Living always for the glory of God. Not clinging to his own will, but surrendering it to the perfect will which called him, which he joyfully went, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, to the cross, despising the shame, so that there he could take on the shame and the guilt and the condemnation and the wrath and the punishment and the justice that you and I and everybody who's ever sinned deserves. And there he paid for his people's sins in full. And then he rose from the dead. And through Christ's coming and his resurrection, the final hourglass of the final chapter of history has been turned over. And the sands of time are now sinking. It's an old hymn that we sing from time to time. The sands of time are sinking. That's not meant to spook you, but it's meant to sober you. To make you keenly aware that we are closer to seeing Jesus than when I began this sermon. He's coming soon. We are in the last days, he says here. God's fullest revelation is his final revelation. God did not merely send a human messenger like a prophet or a heavenly messenger like an angel. 
But rather, he sent the messenger who was fully human and fully heavenly. The God-man. He is now spoken in these last days by his Son. When God gives his final word to the world, he won't just tell us more about who he is. He will show us who he is by sending his Son. Jesus is the God-man. He's not just a prophet. He's greater than the prophets. So these, these Jewish believers who were being tempted to go back to the promise of the prophets, he says, no, 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 don't go back to the promises of the prophets. Jesus is the promise of the prophets. He's the fulfillment. He's greater than the prophets. Which this, I think, just we need to say it, this is the great error of Islam. Aside from calling Allah God when he is not, this is the great error of Islam. It is the error that says that Jesus is merely a great prophet. I just want to say to you, if you're visiting with us today and you're, a, and you're a Muslim, we're really glad that you're here. We actually think there's no better place on the planet for you to be than in a place where you can hear about who Jesus really is. I've had a lot of conversations with friends who are Muslims, and our conversations usually begin uh, with discussions about all the things that we have in common. And while I think there are certainly themes that our religions have in common, I just want to be really clear that we do not believe in the same God or the same Jesus. The Bible is really, really clear that Jesus is actually God's Son. He is God in the flesh. And that He came and was literally born and literally lived on the earth, and then He literally, physically died on a cross, there suffering the wrath of God. It wasn't an illusion. It actually happened. We believe that. We also believe that He actually went into the grave and there was buried for three days, and assumed to be dead forever, but that he was not, and that he literally came out of the grave three days later. And then now he, by doing that, proves that he is the final and true message from heaven. He is God Almighty, the Son of God. So if you're a Muslim here with us today, again, we want to say thank you for being here. We'd love to have you over for a meal and talk to you more about who this Jesus is, but please, do not be under any assumption that we have the same God or the same Savior. Jesus of the Bible is God in the flesh, and he is worthy of being worshipped. Jesus is greater than the prophets. He is the final word to whom nothing can be added. That's why when you, when you read the New Testament... See, after the Gospels, the Gospels give this portrait of who Jesus is and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. But everything about that, it doesn't stop being about Jesus. The rest of the New Testament is simply explanation. It's an epistle that explains more about who Jesus is. So the book of Acts is simply a chronicling of how the Holy Spirit empowers the church to proclaim Jesus to the ends of the earth. Romans testifies to the fact that Jesus' justifying work is the only thing that saves anybody. First and Second Corinthians tells us that God's church should be a humble and holy church because Jesus is holy and humble. Galatians makes really clear that nothing can be added to the work of Jesus because his work is perfect. The book of Ephesians expounds on the fact that when someone becomes a Christian, that their identity is no longer in how they feel, what their orientation is, how they think, but rather now to be a Christian means that you are in Christ and you are rooted in Him, a new identity. That's what Ephesians is all about. Colossians 
uh, well, let's do Ephesians, Philippians first, that in Christ, that there is joy, that there is joy, that we get to experience the same joy that Jesus has. Colossians testifies to the preeminence of Jesus. There's none like him. First and second Thessalonians make us aware that the resurrecting power of Jesus will not leave believers in the grave, but he will finish his work. Uh, Timothy's and Titus lift up the high calling of anybody who's going to be a representative of Jesus as a pastor. Philemon shows the reconciling power of Jesus to take people who are far estranged and to be able to reconcile them one for the glory of God. Hebrews about the supremacy of Jesus and how it empowers us to persevere in faith all the way home. James, that our faith in Jesus shows itself in works that mirror the life of Jesus. First Peter, that Jesus is worthy of suffering no matter what the cost. Even Mark Butman, if they lock us in a cage in the desert. Second Peter and Jude, that false teachers will one day bow a knee to Jesus. So we should give no ear to them, but listen to the good shepherd. That the epistles of John, that love for others is rooted in love for Jesus. In the book of Revelation, that all of history is moving to a moment where Jesus, the King of Kings, will return and set down evil and call his people unto himself forevermore. Jesus is the final word. The whole New Testament's about Jesus, yeah. It's true. In him is the final revelation from God. The final revelation from God. But he is not only the final revelation from God, he is also, point three, God's full revelation. The full revelation from God. Verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In these few verses, we find six truths about the Son of God that each of them could be a sermon, and that we will spend all of eternity learning the depths and the beauties of. I'm going to spend just a few moments taking snapshots of each of these things so that we can behold Jesus, who is not only the final revelation from heaven, but he is the full revelation from heaven. The first thing here in verse 2 is we notice that he is the heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. This means that all belongs to the Father belongs also to the Son. All honor, all power, all praise, all glory that belong to the Father belong also to the Son. After Jesus' resurrection and he appeared to his disciples, do you remember what he said to him in Matthew chapter 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who's got authority to give that? The Father gives it to the heir who is the Son. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Him. What that means is that Jesus is King. No matter what anybody says, what anybody says, bow and knee to me on this earth, we've got to know that Jesus is King. 
He's the Lord. He's the ruler. He's the reigner over all things. Jesus is the one who is the heir. And part, part of the beauty of the gospel is that when Jesus saves a sinner, when he takes somebody like you and opens your eyes to see that your whole life has not been oriented around the God who made the universe and that you've been breathing his air day in and day out and sucking in mercy and taking it for granted and using all of the power and the gifts that he's given just to further your sinful ends. When God awakens you to that, which is what it takes to become a Christian, you see your sin, treason against heaven, and then God gives a new heart and you're born again, you're trusting in Christ, you're following after him. Part of the beauty of the gospel that we get we get Jesus, we get the Father, we get the Holy Spirit. But we also get all that is Jesus's. Listen to this. Jesus shares his wealth with his people. Romans 8, 17. If we are children of God, then heirs. Heirs of God, meaning the great treasure that we get is God himself, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Did you hear that caveat? Provided that you persevere in faith, which is what the book of Hebrews is all about. You'll hear a lot more about that as we go through. Jesus is the heir of all things. Secondly, verse 2, through whom he created the world. So he's the heir, but he's also the creator. Through whom he, the Father, created the world. God the Father made all things through Jesus the Son. Think about that. Everything that exists came through Jesus. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, get continu- I continually am amazed with the ways that we find new stars and new planets and new galaxies and all this kind of stuff. Technology, as it increases, our mind continues to get blown about how big everything around us is and how small we are. There's estimated 100 billion galaxies. That's a lot. You can Wikipedia that and check it out, okay? 100 billion galaxies. None of them, not one speck of dust in any of them, is unknown to him. Psalm 147.4 He counts the number of the stars, and he gives names to all of them. And we're down here like, look how smart we are. We found another star. And God's like, listen, I've long time, y'all. Welcome to the party, you know? Like, I made that thing. So that when you see it, you think, where did that come from? That's what it's intended to do, to humble us and make us be amazed at him. Through whom he created the world. Jesus is the creator of the world. Colossians 1.16, by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him, by him and for him, by him and for him. That means everything that's ever been has come from Jesus and exists for Jesus. This, by the way, is one of the foundational lessons we use in premarital counseling. Marriage is from Jesus and exists for Jesus. You thought your marriage was about you. It's not. It's about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. He gave it. 
which means that it orients the whole way marriage is done. Your singleness, guess what? Guess whose it is? It's Jesus's. Came from Jesus, it's for Jesus. That car you got, or don't got, your bike, scooter, whatever you came here on. Whose is it? You thought it was yours, didn't you? But it's not. It's Jesus. Everything in the universe is from him and for him. Every penny, every shirt, every square inch of the home that you have, or every place that you're renting or looking to rent. It's all his. He created the world, which all creates a great humility in our lives. Thirdly, he is the radiance of the glory of God. So he's the heir, the creator, and he's the radiant one. He is the radiance of the glory of God, verse 3. The word there means brightness. Jesus shines forth the glory of God. In Isaiah 40, God's people have been getting whooped on. They're about to get whooped on worse. They're going to be heading out into exile. And God gives them a promise in Isaiah 40. He says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And he tells them several amazing promises. And then he says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. God says, I want to give you comfort while you're in exile. While you're sojourning throughout the earth and you've got no place to lay your head, what's the hope for anybody? The hope is that the glory of God come. How? Jesus. We read it a moment ago. John 1.14, the Word, the Eternal One, the who has always been, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God became man. We have seen His glory, glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The prophets spoke of glory. Jesus is glory. He is the radiant one. Number four, verse three. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He's the exact imprint of his nature. The word imprint here, it means, it means representation. He's the exact representation of the nature of God. He is God. He's divine. So the way you get a coin, like if you have a coin... The way you get the coin is that there is, um, there, there, there's a cast that has the imprint, and you put metal in there, and you take it out, and you get the exact imprint. Jesus was not created. He has always had and always been that exact imprint of the nature of God. He has always been God. Jesus, when you see Jesus, you see God. He said this himself in John 14, 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is not the Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally distinct, but eternally one. How? It's the mystery of the Trinity who is our God. But Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father, the glory of the Father. This is why people fell down and worshipped before Jesus. Because he is the Holy One from heaven. Just like in Isaiah 6, you'll remember the angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy. The angels covering their eyes because they can't look upon the Holy One upon the throne. Well, John chapter 12 tells us that was Jesus they were looking at. Holy is He. Jesus is God. Listen to that for a second. What a wonderful hope for sinners. Is that amazing? Jesus is God. Is is your sin deep? The Bible says that his arm is not too short to save. Is your sin dark? He says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. 
Is your sin too strong? You feel like you, you feel like you can't stop giving in? Nothing is impossible with God. He is an able and almighty and all-sufficient Savior to save anybody from anything at any time. That's the Savior. That's Jesus. The exact imprint of the nature of the Father. Fifthly, verse 3, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So we already said He was the Creator, but now He's also the Sustainer. He's the sustainer of all things. He created the world by his word, and he sustains the world by his word. Think about that. So next time you're reading through the Gospels, like, just picture that. When Jesus is sleeping on the boat, and the disciples are freaking out because the storm is about to sink him, at that same moment, unhindered, while Jesus is sleeping, he's holding the universe together. Jesus is sleeping, sending the storm, so they'll cry out, and he can show himself to them. That's just what Jesus can do. That's amazing. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Colossians 1.17. In him all things hold together. So he's the maker and sustainer of creation, but also, so all the laws of science, the reason they work is because Jesus makes them work. But not only that, the history that unfolds in and through creation, in time and history, he sustains all of that. That means that not one thing happens in his universe that is apart from his ordaining wisdom, and nothing is ever beyond his complete control. He's the sustainer of all things. Romans 8.28 assures us that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called accordingly his purpose. Jesus is running and ruling the universe. So whatever trouble you face today, cast it upon him. He is an all-sufficient Savior who sustains all things. And then finally, this, the sixth thing that we notice here, verse 3. After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the Savior. The Old Testament theme that we've been studying so much as we've been through Leviticus is that we are unclean because of our sin. We are unable to approach God. We need somebody to cleanse us and reconcile us to God, and that is what Jesus came to do. If you want to flip over to Hebrews 10 for just a moment, look at verse 12. Hebrews 10 Verse 12 says this, When Christ had offered for all time, this is Hebrews 10, 12, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And we'll do this when we're in, in Hebrews chapter 10, but if you are in Christ, you are perfected, set apart, justified. But he is sanctifying you right now. There's a process where he is making you look more like Jesus, where by faith we are clinging to Christ, a faith that perseveres all the way home. Jesus is making all of that happen. That's what he does while he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I think it's really important to notice that, that sat down, word there. It's a major theme when you look through the book of Hebrews. 
Because we just studied Leviticus. What piece of furniture was not in the tabernacle? Ain't no lazy boy. No lazy boy there. Why not? Because the priest's work is never done. Morning, night, all day long, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, just a reminder of sin, says Hebrews, until the one who they were a shadow of came and fulfilled it, and on the cross he said, it is finished. And then he ascended unto heaven after 40 days of teaching, and now he is seated, because the work is done. So those of you who think that you will please God by striving and doing all the right religious things and just being good enough, Jesus says, no, no, no. What pleases God has already been accomplished. And what he wants from you now is to trust in it, to come by faith, trust in the Savior who said the work is done and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. He has died. He has risen. He is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, interceding, reigning, and promising to return. Hebrews says, so don't turn back from him. There's, there's nowhere to go. He and he alone is salvation. Don't go back to Judaism. It was a shadow. Jesus is a substance. Don't go back to Egypt with all of its sinful passing pleasures. Moses saw beyond that, and by faith, Hebrews 11 says, he left it behind and was willing to suffer with the people of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is better. He's greater than the prophets. This study in the book of Hebrews is intended to make us to look upon him, to love him, to trust him. So two simple and brief applications. The first throughout this series, preach Jesus to yourself. Preach Jesus to yourself. Hear this from 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The way that a Christian matures and grows and perseveres is by beholding Jesus. That's why a book like Hebrews is wonderful for you and for me. Preach this Jesus to yourself. Jesus is the glory of God, and by beholding him, our affections are warmed. Our minds are renewed. Daily, humbly, come and say, Jesus, I see the way you forgive sinners. Help me to forgive other people like that. I see how gentle you are with those who came against you. God, Jesus, help me to be gentle in that way. I see how strong you are against hypocrisy. Help me to be strong against the hypocrisy that's in my own heart. Oh, God, would you help me? Preach Jesus to yourself and then praise him. Thank you that Jesus has done all of that on my behalf. Praise him. Thank him. Because there's a warning in Hebrews for you as an individual. Hebrews 3.12 Take care, brothers, church as a whole, lest there be in any one of you individuals an evil, 
unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You preach Jesus to yourself because there is never a moment between now and when we see his face that we do not need to cling by faith to the Savior. Keep him before your eyes that your heart might not grow cold. And the second application is preach Jesus to each other. Preach Jesus to each other. Look at the very next verse. Hebrews 3, 13. Exhort one another every day. Not just Sunday. Not just community group. Not just like once a month. Not just once a year. Exhort one another every day. And long as it's called today, because Jesus is coming back, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers and sisters, look around. The people that you are seated next to right now, God has put you in their lives at this time in history for a particular purpose. That is to help them to heaven. Proclaim Jesus to one another. Point hearts and affections and minds and time and devotion to Him. Because there's something else preaching to your friends. The world has a gospel too. And it's going to promise you that whatever fleeting pleasures of money or adultery, or pornography, or self-righteousness, or power, or fame, or fortune, or whatever your thing is that's going to constantly be calling at you, we, before God, have the responsibility, we're commanded here, to exhort each other every day, don't believe the lie. But look to Jesus, because Jesus is better. That's what it means to be a church. It's not just a club not just to get together on Sunday. We are a family of people who are committed to Christ and in following Him, we want to help each other all the way home. May God give us grace through the book of Hebrews to help each other do that. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we say thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the one who is greater than the prophets. Thank you that though all the prophets looked to him, he is the fulfillment of all of their hopes and wishes and dreams. Father, we say thank you that Jesus is our righteousness. We pray, Father, that you would be with us now. Lord, if there be anybody in here who does not know you, we pray that you would awaken them to what they've been trusting in that is worse than Jesus. Help them to see whatever they've been settling for, even their own fame and glory. Oh God, might you help, might you help your people to cling to you by faith and might you draw more people who do not know you unto you to cling by faith. God, would you work a miracle in our midst? We pray you'd use this series to that end. We pray in the name of Jesus.